This is the podcast for Indelible, a documentary media project in progress for the week of March 3rd, 2018. I posted a letter that I wrote to a director of a nonprofit who assists federal prisoners with civil rights and and human rights issues. And that's posted on the uh, Facebook page for Indelible for this project. And I'm going to post a link to that on the page on Enfold uh, for this podcast as well. So you might want to read that first before you listen to this podcast because it will give background and I'm not going to I'm not going to go into all the details that I went into in that letter. Um, But that letter describes uh, some of Dufour's history that's uh, questionable and and that uh, relates to some of these issues. So I'm thinking further about Dufour's ease of traveling internationally while he was a wanted felon on the run in the late 70s. So he was uh, between uh, convictions... uh, he had been in prison in a juvenile prison in um, a juvenile correction facility in California, um, which he was um, um, placed into, I think, around the age of 17 or 18. And he escaped from, from that facility sometime in the early 70s and, um, and then traveled in Oregon and Washington and then was called back to California um, by someone, by a former cellmate from that facility to do arms training in Humboldt County. And I've talked about that in previous podcasts. So Defer was able to travel to France and Spain sometime around 1978. And I choose that date as it was after he met and was with Marie and I said in the letter that the reason he went to France was to meet with Marie and her family, but that he then traveled on his own to Spain. And he described this in the last year, and that uh, the purpose of his trip for traveling to Spain was to do additional mercenary work. So he had to have some kind of clearance, which allowed him through customs, even though he was a wanted felon, A friend of Harp's said Harp told him he did not have to go through customs in the usual manner when he traveled back into the U.S. from Vietnam or Guatemala during the period of his alleged mercenary work. And I say alleged as I'm not sure that this is the right term to use to describe it. I prefer to call it Blackpool military work as it was undocumented activity overseen by the federal government and involving military personnel. And I believe that the contracts came from agencies associated with the federal government, so not from third parties. It seems that the confidence Dufer had in traveling may have been because he was told such travel restrictions were removed, similarly to Harp. He may have felt protected. But then, in May 1979, Something changed regarding these travel restrictions when he entered, or the release of these travel restrictions when he entered back into the U.S. He and Marie were called into the customs inspector's office in Linden, Washington, when crossing the border. He must have known something was wrong. 
a well-documented mercenary during that same period, Gerald Patrick Hemming, or Jerry Hemming, or Jerry Patrick, went by several names, described how at a certain point after years of service, he became aware he was being set up for crimes, where before the U.S. government used him for their counterinsurgency work, all of a sudden there was a shift, and he saw the signs that the FBI was setting him up and that it was being allowed to happen by those who previously had protected him. It seems this is the life cycle of a mercenary or anyone involved in Blackpool or undocumented military work. At a certain point, they become someone to remove. It is unclear if they have done anything at all that is wrong or that diverted from their accepted behavior during their work. It seems that it is just instead likely part of the life cycle of anyone engaging in these roles with the U.S. government. At a certain point, they are removed. This removal has certain phases, it seems. The first phase is to set the person up in a false crime so they will go to prison for the rest of their life. It seems the mercenary, if you want to call them that, may even participate in such a false crime at first. It's almost as if they are told it is another mercenary role they are being assigned. But then they realize they are the target. But by the time they see this, it's too late, and they are indicted and convicted. If for some reason this doesn't work, they are smeared publicly. This seems to be the case with Eugene or Jean Hassenfuss. He was the man who escaped death when his plane carrying weapons was shot down over Nicaragua. Nicaragua. He escaped alive, and this started the Iran-Contra affair. Hassenfuss was under contract by the CIA to work on those flights. And this has been um, documented, well documented. He ignored their instructions and carried his own parachute. This saved his life. And others on the plane with him all perished. And the photo on this site above this uh, post on Enfold, that's a a photo of Eugene Hassenfoss skydiving. He was an accomplished skydiver and, and did um, skydiving with his brother. He's also in the military. He's in um, he was in Vietnam, and did and parachuted during that period and and participated in flights um, where they did um, the dropping, you know, of weapons and things like that to the to the troops. Decades later, after the advent of social media, Hassanfas began to appear again, and not in any you know political way. He just had a Facebook page and other social media. But almost immediately, a series of bizarre arrests were made of him, which made him look like he had lost his character and his mind, and his social media accounts never had another posting again. Attorney Bill Pepper describes the trajectory of this kind which the U.S. tends to use to remove those who may have thrown a wrench into the works merely by their existence. He says they try to do things to remove the person from the good opinion of the public. These kinds of efforts are similar to what Hemming described or what happened uh, to Diana, Diana Ortiz 
when she was sent a letter before she was uh, kidnapped and tortured, which was overseen by an American in a clandestine prison, or perhaps what can be observed with Hassan Foss, or in the anonymous letters to Martin Luther King before his assassination. But if none of these work, the subject becomes, quote-unquote, intolerable, and the next solution is to end their life. Harp's life was ended in 1981, and I was told so were those of 32 other former kids in his group that same year. And it seems the clearance of travel restrictions Dufer had possibly relied upon in his work may have been yanked in May 1979, which resulted in the alleged shooting in the customs office in Linden, Washington. And I say alleged because of the things I pointed out in that letter. There's still there's some questions that are, are being raised. It seems possible, since he was able to freely travel to Europe not too long before, and he felt confident about traveling to Canada in May 79 as a wanted felon on the run. It is still unclear what role Kenneth Gerald Ward played in all of this. This is the customs official that was um, allegedly shot during that uh, May interaction with Defer. Was he killed in Linden, or did he die in Conway, Arkansas, as described by a former police officer? And there's documentation of that. Did Dufer think this was another job? Is that why he entered the customs office with a gun? Or was it merely the event the mainstream media has portrayed? But clearly, it's reasonable to consider the fact that Dufer was very confident in going through customs, which doesn't make a lot of sense unless he knew from some source that he could expect to be able to move across customs with ease. And it raises questions about what was really going on and who was involved. So that's all I've got for tonight. Thanks.